Amen. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 will be our text today. And Pastor Sam is out of town. He's visiting with his family in Chicago. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to deliver this gospel message to you from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Let's read the text. Starting at verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In our text today, we see what Christ has accomplished on behalf of believing sinners, namely their reconciliation to God and their absolute unwavering security in salvation. Ian Hamilton, in his short book titled Words from the Cross, wrote, quote, the cross is the supreme revelation of God, and it is a revelation of unimaginable love and mercy, end quote. Through the death of Christ, God was displaying his gracious love for his enemies by declaring an end to the war between them and himself by way of the shed blood of the Lamb of God. And this is good news. This is the good news that sinners can be justified, that sinners can be reconciled, that sinners can be delivered from the wrath of God. And like a server who takes food from the kitchen and brings it to the table, the apostle Paul in our text continually lays before us course upon course upon course of this feast that is Romans 5. This passage is nourishment for the soul. This is a firm foundation for a doubting believer. This is hope for a lost sinner. This section is the pulsing heart of God. And I pray that it molds you. I pray that it shapes you. I pray that it conforms you, that it uplifts you, that it edifies you, that it strengthens you. And ultimately, that it brings you to your knees in humble gratitude for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. If you believe, then take heart, for Christ has done what you could never do for yourself. He has reconciled you to a holy God and totally secured your deliverance from his coming wrath. There truly is nothing that can separate the believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we'll see that today. I've titled today's sermon, Absolute Assurance, God's gracious love displayed through Christ's death. And I've given us just three points. Now, hear me when I say to you, we could do 25 sermons on this section. We're not gonna cover everything in this one section, but I wanna give you just three points. Number one, in verses six through eight, Christ's death demonstrates God's gracious love for believers. In verses nine through 10, 
Christ's life provides security and deliverance from God's wrath. And in verse 11, Christ's completed work is the believer's joy in God. And so let's get into Romans chapter five, verses six through 11. Let's start with the context because you can see in verse six, that word for, F-O-R, it's a very common word in the book of Romans. It is in verse six, verse seven. Another conjunction is in verse eight and so on. And so we need to understand where we are in the flow of Paul's argument in the book of Romans. And that's what this word for demands of us. And so the larger context of the book of Romans starts all the way back in chapter one, verse 16 through 18. Turn there with me just for one moment as I read it to you, or Paul gives his, his thesis statement, if you will. This provides the firm foundation for everything that he is going to say from this point forward. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so in those two verses, God, or Paul rather, lays the foundation for what he's gonna talk about. And then in verse 18 of chapter one, up through chapter three, verse 20, Paul reveals the gospel or the righteousness of God in the gospel, primarily through law, through God's justice on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the first picture of God's righteousness. He is just. And Paul makes that explicitly clear in the first few chapters. And he argues that no man or woman, whether they be Jew or Gentile, can be justified, can be made right with God at any attempt to keep God's righteous standard. No one. And in chapter three of verse 21, we get the emphatic, but now, where Paul begins to tell you how you can be made right with God. If no man can keep God's righteous standard, then what can we do? And the relief comes from verse 21 of chapter three, where again, he says, but now, and follow along with me as I read through verse 28, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is a wrath-appeasing sacrifice, in other words, in his blood through faith, for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. (laughs) Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so starting in chapter three, verse 21 and following, 
Paul begins to unpack the righteousness of, of God as it is displayed in his mercy. The righteousness of God as it is displayed in his salvation. The righteousness of God that comes by faith. And then in chapter four, Paul gives us an example of what a life of faith looks like through the person of Abraham. And he also does something that he must do. Paul's doctrine of justification by faith was very controversial in his day and time. And so in chapter four, Paul not only gives us an example of what a life of faith looks like, but he also ties his doctrine back to the Old Testament. You say, how, wasn't there a different way in which people were saved in the Old Testament? Wasn't it by works? The answer is no. It's always been by faith. As Genesis 15, verse six says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so Abraham in chapter four serves as the example of a life of faith. And I'd ask you just to follow along with me from verse 18 through verse 22 to see what that faith looks like. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your seed be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith giving glory to God and, and mark this, and being fully assured, or the ESV says, and being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised to do. Therefore, it was also counted to him as righteousness. Fully assured, that is the subject of our text today. Abraham had absolute assurance that God was able to do what he had promised in the gospel message. And here's the amazing truth that you and I have more evidence this side of the cross than Abraham did on his side of the cross. We have more evidence by which we can be assured of our salvation, of which we can be fully convinced that God is able to do what he says he will do. And in chapter five, our text today, Paul's argument has been the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. He's expressed it through his justice and through his mercy. Both of those are fully expressed on the cross. And now he talks about the benefits or the results of this justification. In verse one, he says, you have peace with God. This is not a subjective feeling of peace. You don't feel good about God. You're not at war with God anymore. You are no longer raising your fist in hatred for God because of what Christ has done. That's the first benefit. The next benefit is in verse two. You have a new position. You stand in grace before God, no longer under law. The next one is that you have hope in the glory of God, which is to say, you believe that God will get you all the way to heaven because of what Christ has done. And then the next one is that you have hope in the midst of the afflictions and trials of life. And these 
This hope that grows during these affliction, afflictions only serves to reinforce your assurance. You see, afflictions, they don't tear you down, they make you stronger. And finally, the last of these results or benefits of justification that leads us into our text today is found in verse five. He says this, follow along with me. And hope does not disappoint or does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Your hope that is placed in God will not disappoint you. The hope that you have because of what Christ has done will not put you to shame. And this is what Paul is eager to prove in our text today. You can have absolute assurance because the love of God has been displayed through the cross for all of those who believe. And you can know both subjectively with the fact that the love of God is in your hearts and objectively, as we're going to see today, through the cross. You can have airtight assurance. And so all of that is what connects us to verse six with the word for. That's the larger context that the revelation of God's righteousness in justice has been expressed through the gospel and the immediate context, the results of God's righteousness in salvation. And in particular, the idea of the hope that you have in God that will, it will never lead you to disappointment. And so look again at verse six with me. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, we, I've already told you who that was. That is believers. And if you want a proof text, you can look at chapter four, verse 24. It says, for our sake also to whom it will be counted as those who believe upon God, or upon him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You need to understand this. This gets lost all the time in contemporary Christianity. Jesus Christ did not die for everybody. He died for those who believe. He died for those whom the Father had given to him. In John chapter 17, you'll see that explicitly. All throughout the Gospel of John, you will see that the Father has given sinners to the Son. That's whom Christ has died for. It is those who believe. And look how they're described. While we were still weak and ungodly, weak without any ability to do what is required of you from a moral standpoint to earn favor with God. You have no desire to do the things of God if you are his enemy which is what he goes on to describe us as later. We are described as utterly hopeless, without strength, without any moral ability to do the things that merit salvation. The next word that Paul uses to get us to remember our condition before Christ is ungodly. This word means those who have no respect for what is holy. Those who love what is profane, the impious, those who fail to honor what is sacred. 
In chapter one, he gives a, a lengthy list of what that might look like. Chapter one, I'll, I'll read a couple from verse 29 and following. Those who have been filled with every manner of unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. They are gossips, haters of God, arrogant, inventors of evil, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving unmerciful, and although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This was all of us before faith. This is the inspired record of you, of me, before faith. And Paul uses other words, which I've mentioned to describe us. Look at verse eight. He says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a word that we use all the time. And I think we've kind of desensitized ourselves to the meaning of this word. It's a very strong word. It means blatantly sinful. In the open, expressing your hatred for God. That's the force of the word. In verse 10, he says, for if while we were enemies, and this word captures the heart of sin, this word captures the heart of the sinner. It describes a person who is resolved to inflict harm. This person is driven by an irreconcilable, deep-rooted hatred for God. This is just the definition of the word in Greek. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using this particular word to describe you and I before our salvation. And what this points to is that sinners have a complete inability, that sinners do not desire anything of God. They love themselves. They hate God. God. You see, sinners are still falling for the lie that was sold to them in the garden. You will be like God. Well, if I'm God, this God is my what? Enemy. That's what Paul is saying. The sinner cannot do what is required for salvation because apart from the spirit of God giving them a new heart, their old heart will never desire the things of God. Chapter three of Romans, turn to it. Verses 10 through 12. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Did you catch that? There is none who seeks for God. That's why I continue to bring up the desire there is no desire apart from the spirit of God giving you the new covenant promise of a new heart. Verse 11 is where we see that. And in verse 10, he says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. And this is why Paul has taken multiple chapters to describe the justice of God. This describes what God is against. 
He's reminding us of our condition before Christ, desperately hopeless and hell-bent on rebellion. But, but God is merciful to his enemies. Verse six, again, in chapter five, it says this, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died at the right time. And this is our second observation in this text here in verse six. Our first was the total inability of the sinner to do anything, to desire anything of God. And this is our second observation that Christ died at the right time. Some translations put it at the appointed time. What does this tell us? This tells us simply this, that God is sovereign over his creation. The sovereign God's plan of redemption has always been God's only plan and he has enacted it. He has enacted it according to his perfect timing, according to his perfect timing. And this points us to the objective historical reality. It is an undeniable historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a cross. It is an undeniable historical fact that a rabbi named Jesus shed his blood on a cross. And our text here tells us that he did it for who? The ungodly. If you can admit that about yourself. And this is how you can know that your hope in God will never disappoint you because you can point to the cross. If your internal subjective feelings get all out of whack and you I don't, God doesn't love me anymore because I've sinned. Stop. Look to the cross. Look to history. You got to deal with that because we have a crucified Messiah and he's there. And that's not all of the objective evidence. You have the scriptures themselves. Turn to chapter three of Romans. Look at verse 21 again. Verse 21 says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Here it is being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What's a witness do? Speaks about something they saw, right? By the law and the prophets. That means two thirds of the entire inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God points to a crucified Messiah. That's your objective proof that your hope will never disappoint you. Are you lacking an internal sense of God's love in your heart? Look to the scriptures. Are you unsure? Are you unstable about the efficacy of the cross? Then look to it. Then look to it. Don't look in your own heart. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. And trust in the sovereign God who at the appointed time knew precisely what he was doing and who he was doing it for. You know, Jesus Christ died for you. And if you were the only one in the world, he'd still die for you. Why? You'd still be a sinner. Jesus Christ knew exactly those for whom he was dying. And his plan is not to save the godly. If what you do creates an instability in you, if your sin in your own mind takes you in and out of favor with God, stop looking at your own heart. Look to the scripture. Look to the cross. His plan is to save the ungodly, not the godly. 
And this puts his mercy on display. It puts his marvelous love on display. Only God could create such a plan that saves those who are unworthy of it and still maintains perfect justice. That's the righteousness of God. He's not partial. He's not compromising by saving you. It's fully just, and we'll show you that in just a moment. But it's also extremely rare. And that is the third observation that we see now in verse 7. Follow along with me. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. This is our third observation, the, the, the rarity of self-sacrifice. We're still focusing on God's gracious love displayed through Christ's death. And this is our third observation. Again, it begins with the word for, which we know then it's just explaining something. And what does he say? Well, he says, look, even the most moral among you would never do this kind of thing. Even if they're righteous, they wouldn't do that. Though perhaps, and when he says, though perhaps, he forces you to meditate on the rarity of this type of sacrifice. He says, though perhaps, maybe a good person would dare even to die. We, we can understand that, right? Maybe a mother would die for her child. Maybe a father would die for his daughter. Maybe a, a military man would die for a, one of his comrades. But you know who a military man would not die for? One of his enemies. You know who a mother would not die for? Someone who wronged her child. You know who a father definitely would not die for? Someone who wronged his daughter. But verse eight tells us the fourth observation. But God, that conjunction, but, just stark contrast. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, but could be translated on one hand. So here's what Paul's saying. He says, on one hand, you've got mankind whose life is all about self, whose love is fickle at best. But on the other hand, you've got God whose life is all about selflessness, whose love is absolutely sure. That's what Paul is saying. I can't find the right words to describe the depth of this passage. This is the superlative statement of the entire New Testament in my view. I can't describe it adequately and it, it frustrates me. But I know God set it up that way because he is outside the control of mankind. You need to understand, look at the scriptures if you are doubting your salvation. Christ died for you. He did it for you. Are you ungodly? Are you a sinner? Then he died for you. <laughs> and you know what? He did it willingly, not begrudgingly. Isaiah 53.10 says the Lord was pleased to crush him. He did it willingly. He's not mad that he had to save you. <laughs> this is the greatest possible thing you could ever think of. And there is no greater sacrifice that God could have initiated than the sacrifice of his own 
son. This is what he was teaching Abraham on Mount Moriah. This is what he was teaching Moses and the Israelites in the Passover. This is what he's teaching us through the gospels, that God loves you. This radically should transform you. Romans 8, 31 through 32. What shall, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. This truth radically should change you. It changed the apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 15 through 16. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. And yet for this reason, I was shown mercy so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. Romans 5.8 is the precious death of the Son of God on your behalf. It is the foundation of redemption. Everything is built off of it. And it is the only means that God has provided for forgiveness. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This is the only means of forgiveness. This is the plan of God initiated at the appointed time to send a substitute to die on behalf of believing sinners. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. There is no other way in the mind of God for your sin and my sin to be forgotten if it is not covered by the blood of his sacrifice. You have nowhere else to go. Your best efforts, your so-called spirituality, you have nowhere else to go, but depending entirely Christian, if you've been a Christian for a long time, listen to me. By depending entirely upon his merit before the judge. Sin is so deceitful that it will begin to get you to think that, oh, I'm living pretty good. Oh, yeah. Oh, I haven't coveted for a couple days. I certainly haven't done what that guy's done. I'm pretty good. Sin is deceptive. Don't be fooled. If you go to the cross, I'm sorry, if you go to the throne 
And you sound like Matthew chapter seven, but Lord, I did all of these things in your name. I started a ministry. I preached your gospel. I went out on every evangelism day. I was at every workday, Lord. He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. What are you trusting in? Don't be lulled to sleep by the greatest possible thing you could fill your mind with, even if you've heard it for years. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, give us a warning of rejecting this gracious gift. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is the knowledge of this new covenant that I just read, that the, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. If you go on looking for something else to merit salvation for you, that's what that means. If you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Before we leave our first point today, I have to stress to you, where will you run to for safety if you do not run to the cross? You need to know this, that Psalm chapter seven, verses 11 through 12, describe God as a righteous judge who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword and he has bent his bow and he's waiting to let it go. If a man does not repent, that's the picture of God as you get. If you repent, he relents. Just like Pastor Sam taught us last week. Have you repented? Have you placed all of your hope of salvation in Christ? Remember what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you have done that, that hope will never disappoint you. Why? Because if Christ died for you when you were an ungodly, without strength, sinning enemy, and if he did that to bring you into his kingdom, how will he not also take you all the way to glory? This whole passage is really an argument from the lesser to the greater. And believer, if you have believed in Christ, then what I've just described to you, this is your food. This is what you must continue to come back to. And so let's move on then to the next point because his blood has been spilt and it is sufficient for your sin. And by his resurrection life, you will be delivered from the coming wrath, which is what we see in verses nine through 10. Christ's life provides security and deliverance from God's wrath. And notice how he starts verse nine, much more than, this is a phrase that we continually see all throughout chapter five. And it's been described in a couple of ways. It surely extends his logical reasoning, 
But man, for the believer who's read this over and over again, but who's doubting right now, Paul's just serving up more nourishment for the soul. He's serving up. He says much more then in verse nine. And then he says again in verse 10, halfway through the verse, much more. And then in verse 11, he says, not only this, plate after plate after plate, drink after drink after drink for the parched and weary soul. And so in verses nine and 10, we see this, abs- this idea of absolute assurance just said really in, in two different ways. He doesn't say anything different in these two verses. It's like a diamond. If you hold it up to the light and you just turn it slightly, you get different refracting of the color off of it. That's all he's doing here. And I want you to look at verse nine and locate that phrase justified by his blood. And then look at verse 10 at the end. And I want you to locate the phrase, we shall be saved by his life. I want you to, to note that in your mind or in your Bible, this life-blood connection, it finds its significance all the way back in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11. It says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This life-blood connection is absolutely critically important. It's absolutely necessary for your deliverance. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Leviticus 17 tells us why. And this is why we had the entire um, historical event of the Passover. God was, again, showing his people the significance of this life-blood connection. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the Passover lamb comes in Exodus chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. And the Lord speaks to Moses and he says this, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood and I will pass over you. And there shall be no plague amongst you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The life of the lamb, the blood of the lamb given for the deliverance of the believer. That's what the Passover teaches us. The lamb, innocent, undefiled, separate from sin, sinners, totally guilty, absolutely defiled, full of stains, but Christ, the lamb of God, has been given to you. His innocence imputed to your account before the judge. The record of wrongs come up. Christ has none. You have too many to count. This is the scandal of the gospel, that in the mind of God, he has provided an innocent substitute so that the records of wrongs can be transferred. If that doesn't bring a smile on your face, you got to wake up. (laughs) The innocent record of the Lamb of God is now your record. This is the scandal of the gospel. This is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. His blood is the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice of God's fury towards your sin, and his blood is also the guarantee of your deliverance in the future day of judgment. Follow along with me now in verse 10. 
Because verse 10 is just describing the same thing, but in a slightly different light. Again, notice the word for, continuing the idea. Again, serving up more gospel truth. Now, here's the thing with verse 10 that I told you we weren't going to be able to do everything in one sermon. So I want you to see the grammar of this verse, the grammar of this verse, an objective reality of this verse. Now, notice in verse 10, the phrase, we were reconciled. The Greek construction of this verse is like this. It's written in the indicative mood, which tells us a statement of fact. It's written in the aorist tense, which is a snapshot of past action. And it's written in the passive voice, which is used to show that the subject of the verb is being acted on. What does this mean? This means this, that the only way to undo your reconciliation would be to undo the saving act of God's son. The next thing I want you to focus is the phrase in verse 10, having been reconciled, right after the phrase much more. The Greek construction of this, again, is in the aorist tense, again, in the passive voice, but the difference here is it's also a participle, which means this, very significant. It's a past action that has continuing effects. So what's he saying? Paul is emphasizing that your reconciliation to God is something that occurred in the moment of your belief, that has continuing effects throughout your life and is ultimately, listen, dependent upon the sufficiency of what God has done in Christ for you. That's the grammar of the passage. And the final phrase, we shall be saved by his life at the end of the verse. This one is again written in the indicative mood, a statement of fact. This one is again written in the passive voice. Something is acting on the subject, but it's in the future tense. So Paul then is saying that the believer's deliverance in the future is so certain that he can talk about it as if it is a matter of fact. Did you catch that? Here's what Paul is saying. Christ's blood reconciled you, it maintains your reconciliation, and it has already delivered you from the day of wrath. In other words, your salvation started with him, it stays with him, and it ends with him. Can you be happy about that? <laughs> Can those doubts that you may have walked in here with be gone now? Your salvation is entirely dependent upon the one who never changes. That's just the grammar of the verse. We could say much more, but that's just the grammar of the verse. Christ's blood has signaled the end of the war between God's enemies who believe and God. His argument is airtight. You need to know your heavenly father loves you. He loves you. Now, the final point in today's sermon is in verse 11. And again, he says not only this, as he begins to talk about Christ's completed work being the believer's joy in God. Not only this, as if there was anything else that could make you more certain. Paul says there is. There's one more thing I have to tell you about. He says, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll stop there. 
What does it mean to boast in God? Well, it's like I mentioned earlier, chapter one, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul is not afraid to tell people about the gospel. He boasts in the glory of God. He knows who he is and he knows who God is. And he knows that his father loves him. He knows that his father loves him so much that he would sacrifice the most valuable object in heaven for those who are most unworthy of it. And this word boast can be translated literally living with your head up high. With your sh- my, my football coach in high school used to say, son, you got to get your shoulders back. You got to walk around with your chest out, right? It's a silly example, but literally this word can be used and translated in such a way. Every time Paul uses this word in the New Testament, he uses it 36 times, he is talking about what you can literally describe as holy bragging. Holy bragging. What do you mean holy bragging? I mean, you can brag on what Christ has done. You can proclaim the excellencies and the magnificence of what God has done in Christ for you. You can do that. That's permissible. You can boldly proclaim the love and justice of God as it is displayed in the death of Christ. And why would we shrink back from such a thing? There's many reasons, but I'll give you two. Why would we shrink back from telling people about the good news? Pride and unbelief. Pride and unbelief. That's why you would shrink back. You're either scared of what they might think of you. You're afraid of losing your job. You're afraid of losing friends. You're afraid of being looked at as a holy roller. You're afraid of being ostracized by your so-called friends. Pride. The other reason is unbelief. You may not believe at all, and you may not profess to believe. And so for the professed unbeliever, he would never brag about what God has done because to do so would actually be to admit self-defeat. God has conquered all his enemies, of which I am one. Now, you can also be a professing believer and still be full of unbelief. Again, where do you place your hope? Where is your hope? Is it placed in what you have done or is it placed in what God has done through Christ? This is what it means to brag. This is what it means to boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this mean, through our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians as we begin to close here. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 26. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And I think this is an accurate description of what it means to boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 26, the apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church, for consider your calling brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he might abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does it mean to boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say amen to that? It means that the true Christian is happy to rid themselves of any attempt at stealing God's glory and salvation. The true Christian doesn't go, well, God saved me because I believed. No, he didn't. He saved you because he chose you. That's what it says. The true Christian doesn't try to steal God's glory. And so we're satisfied in the Savior. This is what it means to boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is our boasting? Or what is the reason for our boasting? The end of the verse in chapter five of Romans. Through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And I love how the LSB translation brings out that, that definite article there. The reconciliation. And there's no other reconciliation worth comparing in all human history. Every peace treaty that's ever been made has been broken at some point. This one has never been broken. This one cannot be broken. All else is temporary. Only this reconciliation is eternal. And so as we close, we've looked at God's incredible, gracious love as it has been displayed by Christ's death. We've seen how Christ's life is the absolute assurance of your deliverance from the day of judgment and the wrath that will come with it. And we've seen that through Christ, you can have joy in God, no longer running from him, no longer shaking your fist at him, but having true joy because of what Christ has done. And so I ask you, if you came in here as an unbeliever, are you still angry with God? Are you still holding your fist up at the one who spilt his own son's blood? Are you able to say that, yes, I am a sinner, that yes, I am ungodly. Are you able to admit that? Or does that hurt your ears? Is that bitter to your taste? I would implore you, remember what happens if we reject the message of grace. There's nowhere else to turn. And for the believer, do you have a clear vision of what God has done in Christ? You may have heard this your entire life. Please don't ever let it become cold don't ever let it become mechanical. That's not how God views it. You shouldn't view it that way either. Is he your boast? Do you hold your head up high when you declare the gospel? Ask him for strength. Ask him for power. Ask him for the ability to do that. And let this be what you continually return to for nourishment. And if you came in here with doubts as to your salvation, remember this. It started with Christ. It stays with Christ and it ends with Christ. You can be assured of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love that's been displayed through the cross of Christ. God, I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, Lord God, to repent, confess, and to trust only in the sufficiency of Christ. It's a simple message, Lord. But God, I pray, Lord, that you would not let it become old in our minds. Oh God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy as we prepare ourselves to take of the Lord's table, Lord. I pray, God, that during this time that you would convict hearts. God, I pray that you would draw sinners to yourself. 
and that you would sanctify the saints. In Jesus' name, amen.